time for Sicily, so get your bags packed, but just don't expect too much space on the beach. It's the first episode of a series about ancient Sicily on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, my name's Neil, and as you just heard, this episode is the first in a series on ancient Sicily, something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. Over the course of several episodes, I'll cover the period from when the island became a home for Phoenician and Greek colonies through to when it became a Roman province. In this episode, I'll be starting with the early history of Sicily and then with the arrival of the two main cultures who settled there, the Phoenicians and the Greeks. I'm going to unwrap what those early settlements were, what they did and how they interacted with the indigenous people on the island. This will take me up to around the middle to late 7th century BC, that's 650 to 600 BC or thereabouts. And as you'll hear, there is a lot to cover. Before I begin, there is the standard appeal where I ask for reviews if you can spare the time. Platforms such as Spotify and Apple use the stars of podcast gets to help promote it to new listeners. With Spotify, you can even leave a review for a specific episode. My marketing budget is as small as those tiny violins that you can hear playing. In fact, as you probably guessed, I don't have a marketing budget. This part is over to you. So if you can rate or review, just know that it's really, really appreciated. You can find more ancient history content on my Instagram, YouTube, TikTok and X, where I am at Ancient Blogger. On X, this podcast also has its own account, at Hound Ancient. All of these links, plus more, is on my Ancient History website or blog, ancientblogger.com, and I'll be putting up episode notes on there with a reading list, images, transcription, and anything else which I hope helps. For the old school amongst you, there is my email, but you probably guess what it is by now, ancientblogger at hotmail.com. In short, there are many ways that you can get in touch if you want to. And please do, as I like to engage with anyone who listens to me. And finally, thanks to all the returning listeners. I appreciate your support. Oh, and one thing, specific to this episode, I'm doing a lot of different pronunciations. So apologies if I don't get them exactly right. To start with, let's orientate ourselves with some geography and a bit of a walk. Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean. It covers just under 26,000 kilometres squared. And if it were a state in the US, it would be slightly larger than Vermont and New Hampshire and just a bit smaller than Massachusetts. The island famously takes the form of a triangle, well, sort of, but let's imagine travelling along the coastline of Sicily. We'll start at its western tip, on the north coast, which runs on an east-west or west-east axis. After walking roughly 380 kilometres east, you'll reach the eastern end, and from here, you can make out the toe of Italy. Now, we'd need to turn south with the Sicilian interior on our right. On our left is an initially narrow body of water sat between us and that famous toe end of Italy. This channel separating us is known as the Strait of Messina, a mere three kilometres at its narrowest point. According to myth, it was here where Scylla and Charybdis both hung out. Scylla was a terrifying creature who would lean from the cliffs and snatch sailors from their ships. Try saying that a few times. Charybdis was a whirlpool which would swallow down whole ships. Not an easy place to navigate. Our journey now takes us southwards, down Sicily's eastern coast, some 254 kilometres. It's actually the shortest coast, 
but as you'll hear in this episode, it becomes the busiest. To our left, the narrow Strait of Messina opens out into the Mediterranean, and on our right, we'd see a feature which dominated the island, and still does, Mount Etna. Where Etna looms large in the geographical context, it also became an important location in myth. Aeschylus, the Greek playwright, wrote how the forge of Hephaestus sat atop the volcano, whilst the monster Typhon was trapped underneath it. This then helped explain the raging fires on the volcano and the occasional rumble from below. Once we'd made it to the bottom end of the eastern coast, we'd turn right once more and head northwest along the southern coast, a distance of some 380 kilometres. Just as a caveat, these distances are rough calculations. You might see figures a bit shorter, but there are sometimes listed as the crow flies. However, these aren't straight lines, these are winding coasts, hence the increased distance. But I'm sure worth it, and perhaps walking around Sicily's coast should go on my bucket list. But though I'm focused on the coastline, there's much to be said about the interior of Sicily. It's a place of hilly climbs, beauty and tragic myth. A central region here, known as Enno, was where Hades abducted Persephone. Indeed, Persephone was strongly linked to the island. And whilst on the subject of monstrous acts, the island was also identified as where Odysseus met the Cyclops. Moving away from myth and back along the southern coastline, we'd eventually find ourselves back to that western tip, and it's time to consider the earliest inhabitants of the island. In the 5th century BC, the Greek historian Thucydides provided a commentary about who they were and how they got there. Thucydides split the indigenous peoples into three tribes or factions, the Limians, Sicils and Sicani. The western corner of the island was home to the Limians, who, as Thucydides reckoned, were settlers who had escaped the destruction of Troy. Occupying the eastern third of the island were the Sicils, who had crossed over from Italy and who gave the island its name. In the central third and sandwiched between the two were the Sicani, who had emigrated there from Iberia. Thucydides' account is formed, as you might expect, from his understanding in the 5th century BC. The reality, as you might have guessed, is that it hasn't been easy to separate the peoples of Sicily into three distinct groups as Thucydides did. For the sake of ease from now on, I'll be referring to the indigenous people as just that, indigenous people, rather than using the labels Thucydides did. Archaeological evidence indicates that there were people on Sicily a long time ago. Human activity can be dated as far back as 13,000 BC from stone tools. There's also cave art, though the date range is debated, and maybe later, perhaps as recent as it were, as 8,000 BC. In later times, Sicily was renowned for its agricultural plenty. It was a grain basket. But from 6,000 BC, something very different was farmed there. Not grain or even anything you might wish to nibble upon, though it was something which would help you gain food. I'm talking about obsidian. Just off the northeast coast of Sicily are the Aeolian Islands, and one in particular, Lipari, had large amounts of this material. These islands were formed as a result of volcanic activity, and obsidian is essentially volcanic glass, which can be fashioned into possessing razor-sharp edges or points. Even today, obsidian is prized for its cutting prowess. This was the equivalent of a laser. It could cut finer, deeper or more easily than more or less anything else around. As such, obsidian knives or arrowheads were highly sought after. 
Obsidian was soon traded with the immediate region. It made its way to southern Italy, Sardinia, and even as far as Croatia. However, in the middle of the 3rd millennium BC, that's around 2500 BC, the market for obsidian seems to have collapsed, perhaps due to the preference for copper and metalworking. It was around this time that the Castelluccio culture arose and dominated the southeastern part of the island till around 1500 BC. These people were largely farmers who herded cattle and grew crops in the Sicilian interior, but they also traded with nearby Malta, Sardinia and southern Italy. Around 1500 to 1200 BC, we have the Thapsos culture. These were people who were located on the southeastern corner of the island, and their tombs featured imported Mycenaean and Cypriot pottery, which indicated that Sicily had links to the eastern Mediterranean. The period following 1200 BC saw a breakdown of these maritime trade routes, and on Sicily, the rise of the Pantalican culture, again based on the southeastern part of the island. Where coastal settlements had been a viable option, the deterioration of trade routes meant that people turned more to the inland of Sicily. And in fact, this period ran through till around 650 BC, and so it was this period which witnessed newcomers to the island. Now, I should add that what I've given is a very, very basic overview of several thousand years, but I think it's important to acknowledge that when those first settlers arrived, they did so not to a wild backwater, but to somewhere which had been part of the wider Mediterranean cultural exchange for a long time, and also somewhere with layers of its own history. Up until now, I've spoken about Sicily pretty much in the context of the eastern part of it due to the finds there, but the first of our settlers weren't interested in this end of the island. Instead, they found a spot on the western tip. These were the Phoenicians, and they were to become a force to be reckoned with. I've mentioned the Phoenicians in previous episodes, for example, the link with Thebes and mainland Greece, and their contribution to what became the Greek alphabet. These were a people based in the Levant, think modern-day Lebanon or thereabouts. Though we refer to them as a singular entity or with a singular title, they were much like the Etruscans and ancient Greeks, that is to say independent city-states sharing a similar culture. The Phoenicians excelled at maritime trade, and had been developing trade routes and networks across the Mediterranean. Rather than one long route, their networks seemed to have been formed of shorter or medium-distance routes knitted together. As such, a particular item might be sold in a nearby location, or passed from trading point to trading point, and ending up a great distance from where it started. A good example of the extent of their networks is the southern Iberian Peninsula, modern-day southern Spain and Portugal. There's evidence of Phoenician activity there as early as the 9th century BC, with a settlement which Huelva now sits on, furnished with a Phoenician quarter. In the 8th century BC, the Phoenicians went all in and established their own trading posts on the coast. I say trading post, but another word used is sometimes colony, and here I need to offer comment about that word. To understand what a colony was at this time is to strip it of much of its modern associations and connotations. I covered this a bit more on my episode on Magna Graecia, which involved many Greek colonies popping up in southern Italy. Colonies at this time weren't military ventures sent out by a singular power, say an empire. They were often formed of groups of people, sometimes from different city-states in the case of the ancient Greeks, looking to establish a settlement with the idea of accessing choice trade networks or resources. 
they were not done at the point of the spear, as often what made a prize spot a prize spot was that it had good networks already there and good interactions with locals. Of course, there might be tension, and there's a possible example of that which I'll come to in this episode. But as a general observation, settlers seemed to get on with their indigenous neighbours. They traded, they shared culture and intermixed. This didn't mean everyone stood around holding hands. These are humans after all. But it's important to realise that a colony wasn't an invasive thing. The idea was that you would benefit more by getting along. And if you listened to the episode on Magna Graecia, you'd have heard that much of the squabbling, the bickering and the fighting done by Greek colonies was with other Greek colonies. Around 800 BC, Phoenician settlers arrived on the western tip of Sicily. The landing point was an island in a lagoon just off the coast. Today, it's known as the Stagnoni Lagoon, and the island is called San Pantaleo. The lagoon provided a near-perfect location for the Phoenicians. Islands to the west protected it from the open sea, which meant that the only way in or out of the lagoon was from the north and south. The island the Phoenicians chose measured some 850 metres by 750 metres, the total area of the island being some 40 hectares. The initial place the Phoenicians set themselves up was the southern part of the island, near a natural spring, something which would become an important feature. The name for the settlement on the island was Motia, and it's been reasoned that this derived from the word meaning wool spinning. This carries a commercial motif, but as you'll hear, what may have been intended as a trading settlement certainly grew into something much more. The freshwater spring in the south of the island provided them much-needed water, and in terms of food, there was game to hunt on Sicily, which was only one kilometre to the east, fish to, well, fish, and the settlers grew crops. Though the location was ideal, it wasn't secret. In fact, excavations revealed that in one area known as the Acropolis, people had been living there from as far back as 1650 BC, and had been doing so till around 100 years prior to the Phoenicians arriving. In fact, Phoenician goods have been discovered there, which may indicate that the Phoenicians had traded with these people. You see, when it came to scouting a good place to settle, Phoenicians always did their homework. Exactly what drove the Phoenician peoples here isn't clear, though one argument places instability in their homelands as a main culprit. In the 9th century BC, the Phoenician cities had come under the scrutiny of the Neo-Assyrians, and perhaps the warring machinations of the Neo-Assyrians made being in an overseas colony a bit more of an attractive proposition than it had previously been. And in terms of how many people arrived at Motia in that first wave, though these are always speculative, one model has suggested that it was around 150 men and women. But before I get into what those early settlers did, here's a word from a friend of the podcast, Helen McVeigh, who runs the HM Classics Academy. Have you ever thought about learning ancient Greek or Latin? Perhaps it's been something you've always wanted to do, but never got around to. Or perhaps you just don't know how you would go about studying these languages. I think I can help. My name is Helen McVeigh and I run HM Classics Academy, which delivers online courses in ancient Greek, Latin and ancient history. HM Classics Academy has courses to suit all levels of language ability, from complete beginners to the more advanced. Our language courses begin in January, April and September, and we even offer an intensive summer school in July. Ancient history classes last between 8 and 10 weeks, 
and cover a range of topics from Homer's Odyssey through to the Roman Empire, architecture and, well, why not have a look at the HM Classics Academy website? There might be something you would be interested in. Latin, Ancient Greek and Ancient History are becoming more popular and I have students from Europe and even further afield such as South America, Australia and Japan all developing their skills and knowledge. You can find me, Helen McVeigh and HM Classics Academy on Facebook, Instagram and other social media. Just search for HM Classics Academy or my name, Helen McVeigh. That's M-C-V-E-I-G-H. So why not have a look? And if you see something you're interested in, contact me. I can't wait to hear from you. Thanks, Helen. I should add that if you wanted to hear Helen in action, she joined me in an episode to talk about her fantasy dinner guests. Helen had to choose six characters from ancient history, and the episode is imaginatively called Fantasy Dinner Guests with Helen McVeigh. If you haven't listened, why not give it a go? There'll be a couple there that will be a surprise, trust me. And just so you know, I'll be including the links to HM Classics Academy in the episode notes on ancientblogger.com. Okay, back to Motya and those early settlers. The first Phoenicians to arrive on Motya seem to have made their homes on the southern coast of the island, as evidenced by the early wells dug in this area. It was here that the first substantial structure was found, known as Building C. It had a second story, and along with finds of fishing equipment, seeds and pottery, was most likely a communal building, which also stored important resources. Just to the north of the original settlement was a natural feature, that spring-fed freshwater pond. For the early settlers, this also had a religious value to it, and temples to Baal and Astarte were established there. This was one of two religious sanctuaries on the island, and it became known as the Cothon Sanctuary. The word Cothon actually refers to a type of military harbour, which wasn't what this was. But when excavations first took place, a canal was located to the south of the pool, and the conclusion was that this was a Cothon. However, later excavations realised this initial error. The feature wasn't a canal which linked the pool at this time, but the name stuck. From their initial base on the south of the island, the Phoenicians extended north. The area known as the Acropolis, which I mentioned earlier, sat roughly in the central southeast portion of the island. It was named Acropolis as it was formed of a mound which sat higher than the surrounding area, and it had been inhabited prior to the Phoenicians moving in. When they did so, they began to form a basic layout of small streets and houses with wells and cisterns. Remains of food found here indicated that the Phoenicians had a diet which included tortoise, dog, goat, pig, deer, barley, chickpeas, lentil and wheat. The Acropolis was linked to the southern area by a couple of roads, and it also had a single road running to the northern part of the island. Here, close to the shore, was another sanctuary. It was known as Kabadazu, or perhaps Kabadatsu, and a building here has been argued as that dedicated to Melkart. It was also here that the docks were based, as well as the Tophet, this sat on a spur of land and was composed of a sacred precinct, well, shrine and remains. These did include those of children, though it's unclear if these were sacrificial or simply a result of the high infant mortality, which was a mainstay of the times. It was also here that the necropolis was found, and this area seems to have been used by people earlier or prior to the Phoenicians. We can consider earlier Motia 
as composed of these three main areas, with the remainder, around two-thirds of the island, given to agriculture. Grapes were grown to make wine, food was salted, wool was spun, pottery was made, and there was dyeing. What is evident at Mottia was that this wasn't merely a trading post on the coast. It was much more than that. Take some of the burials found in the necropolis. These contained local pottery, and the suggestion is that burial customs changed with the intermixing of the indigenous peoples with the Phoenicians. That is to say, locals were marrying in or becoming part of the population here, and when buried, their customs influenced the standard Phoenician burial norms. Pottery itself provides a great backdrop for observing these cultural changes in action. The Phoenicians at Motia were imitating the popular Greek styles, whilst also adding to their own. They used the indigenous ware, whilst the indigenous peoples themselves were influenced by the Greeks. In the 7th century BC, there emerged a style made at Motia, which can be distinguished from other Phoenician settlements. In short, it was developing its own brand and style. By the end of the 7th century BC, which is the end point of this episode, we might imagine Motia as a place bustling with trade, but also setting about developing its own Sicilian flavour. This will be explored more in the second episode. One estimate has the population of Motia at around 1,500 people by this point. This would have included those born there, but also subsequent migrations of people to it, and also those indigenous people who may have moved there as well. In the 7th century BC, two more Phoenician settlements were founded. There was Ziz, later known as Panormus or Monde Palermo. Along with this was Saluntum, which was on the north coast of that western corner. For the rest of the episode, apart from one instance, because there's always one exception to the rule, I'll be turning my attention to the eastern third of the island, because it was here that we find our second group of settlers, the Greeks. As you've heard, there had been interaction between Sicily and the Greeks for some time, for example the Mycenaean pottery found on the island. But perhaps it wasn't just Greek pottery on the island, as it's plausible that Greeks may have lived there. This itself isn't much of a bold statement. The Mediterranean was, pun intended, a fluid place. People moved around. There's evidence, for example, that Greeks were resident on the Aeolian Islands as early as 2100 BC and there's been a possible Tholos tomb identified near modern-day Messina, and dating to between 2000 and 1500 BC. Tholos tombs were very popular with Greeks, particularly the Mycenaeans. From around the 8th century BC, the Greeks started committing to a more permanent foothold outside of their homelands. Around 734 BC, Naxos was founded. Thucydides commented that it was the oldest Greek colony on Sicily, And I should mention that quite specific date does come with a caveat of give or take. The settlers came from Chalcis. This was a city on the island of Euboea, just off the coast of Attica. It was also argued that settlers from the island of Naxos were included there as well. If so, then this was a joint venture. Naxos sits near modern-day Giardini Naxos on the east coast of Sicily. The original settlement is thought to have sat on the slopes of Mount Tauro. The Greeks, much like the Phoenicians, were keen to settle near the coast. Two of the settlement's streets, both dating to the 8th century BC, ran parallel to the beach. It was a small community, measuring some 10 hectares in total. As Naxos grew, it expanded to the southwest, with temples built near the coast. 
The most notable feature at Naxos was an altar on its beach. This was an unusual place for an altar, but its placement linked to its purpose because this shrine or altar was in honour of Apollo Archigates. Now, you might be familiar with the practice of Greek deities having specific epithets which reflected an aspect of their worship. For example, Zeus Xenia, where Zeus is associated with being a good host or guest. Well, here, Apollo was being worshipped as a protector of colonies. The altar became a major cultural feature. Ambassadors and visiting Greeks and even those leaving made sacrifices there. Many years after its installation, around 700 in fact, Octavian moored his ships next to the shrine, and in Appian's account of this, he commented that there was a small statue of Apollo there, which had been put in place by the Naxians just after they founded the colony. Relations between the new colony and the indigenous people seems to have been amiable. Pottery was exchanged, and this becomes part of a standard pattern of interaction between the Greek colonies and the indigenous peoples. There's also evidence that indigenous people were living there by the 6th century BC. The location of Naxos was no accident. As you might expect, it gave fantastic access to the trade routes. From here, Naxos had routes running east-west, but also to the north. Finds dated from the 7th century BC onwards indicate a link with Pithecusae and Cumae. Cumae was located near modern-day Naples, and Pithecusae on an island just across the Bay of Naples. This wouldn't be a surprise, as both locations are linked with Greeks from Euboea, the island upon which Chalcis is found but they weren't the only Greeks looking for some Sicilian real estate. Hot on the heels of Naxos, in fact a year later, the colony of Syracuse was founded. Our source for this is again Thucydides, and carries with it that caveat I mentioned earlier about dates. The founder of Syracuse was a certain Archias from Corinth. He was a member of an aristocratic family, and in contrast with the peaceful foundation of Naxos, the foundation of Syracuse was reported by Thucydides as involving force. The island of Ortigia, just off the coast, was a perfect location for the settlers. It was easily defended and allowed for access to the resources nearby. However, it wasn't empty and the locals there were reportedly driven from it. Early Syracuse was formed on this island. Pottery and small houses measuring 3.5 metres by 3.5 metres date to the 3rd and 4th quarters of the 8th century BC. In the 7th century BC, there was expansion to the mainland and evidence from tombs paint an emerging colony whose residents were moving up the economic ladder and becoming more prosperous. Both Naxos and Syracuse didn't sit idle. Although they were colonies, they became parent cities to new colonies not far from themselves. Six years after its foundation, Naxos founded two colonies to the south, Leontini, modern-day Lentini, around 729 BC, and Catane, which is now known as Catania, this settled at a similar time. The site for Leontini wasn't coastal, it was inland. It still had access to the sea via a river, but it seems to have been placed in order to secure a good spot on the southern Catanian plain. In contrast, Catani secured a good spot with a harbour and access to the inland via a river. With these two new colonies, Naxos sought to mark out a zone of control. They were early tentative moves on what was a much larger chessboard. To the north of Naxos, there was also activity. Zankel or Zankle, or modern-day Messina as you probably know it, was on the northeastern tip of Sicily and controlled the important trade routes and the crossing to southern Italy. Thucydides wrote that it took its name from the local word for sickle, 
as the bay was sickle-shaped. The foundation of Zankul is a bit confusing. Thucydides mentioned that originally pirates had settled there and that they were joined later by settlers from Chalcis and Euboea. Exactly when that second stage occurred isn't clear, but it's argued as just after the foundation of Naxos. What does seem certain, though, is that people from Euboea and Chalcis weren't hanging around. Syracuse wasn't sitting on its hands either, though, and they too looked to establish sub-colonies to check and balance the moves made to the north of them. Just remember that though Naxos and Syracuse were both inherently Greek, they had different parent city-states. As you might be aware, Greek city-states were often falling out with each other or simply at war. If you've listened to the episode on Magna Graecia, you'll recall how the colonies of Greek city-states didn't always get on and often recreated or inherited the rivalries and power struggles of their parent city-states. The Syracusan sub-colonies such as Acre, Acrylae and Casmenae followed in the 7th century BC. All of these were inland, that is to the west of Syracuse. Presumably the intention here was to secure the trade routes and strategic points of the mainland. Another colony was Hellerus, 40 kilometres to the south and on the coast. What Syracuse was doing here was marking out a chunk of territory in the southeast corner of the island. Syracuse and Hellerus securing the coast and Acre and Casmane on the inland region. In the 7th century BC, two other coasts, namely the northern and the southern, received Greek colonies. On the eastern end of the southern coast, colonists from Rhodes and Crete founded Gela. Thucydides reasoned that it took its name from the river Gelas and it was built on a hill which ran parallel with the coast. There is a debate as to whether this formal colony was the development of a previous settlement. In either case, it was to become a place which was highly consequential. Now it's time for the final colony, with the caveat that there have been others which I've not had the chance to mention. This colony was unique in a number of ways. First up, the location. On the northern coast, but not at the eastern end, rather further along to the west. Secondly. It was formed in part by colonists following a political falling out at a Greek colony I've already spoken about. I know, Greek political fallings out in a city, we both need a cup of tea and a long sit down. The colony in question was called Himera, and its date of foundation is between 650 to 625 BC or thereabouts. As for the founders, well, there were those from Zankel or Zankle, and apparently some from Syracuse. This latter group had been expelled or decided to leave due to political friction. Thucydides provided a nice insight mentioning that the two groups had very different dialects. We sometimes forget that ancient Greeks often commented on the accents and dialects of other ancient Greeks. I've come to the end of the episode and hopefully I've succeeded in outlining the major colonies on the island and how things were building up. I should add that though I've dealt separately with the Phoenicians, Greeks and the various indigenous peoples, I've done so because this was the practical way to introduce them. The reality was, and I'll be covering this much more in the second episode, is that these cultures intermingled, they traded, and as a result influenced each other. These were separate peoples, but their respective cultures were porous enough to soak up the new influences. At the moment, we have a picture of an island shared and enjoyed, and as you guessed, this wasn't to last. In the next episode, I'll be picking up the stories and developments which led to a much more dramatic state of affairs. The next episode isn't called Sicily, Tyrants and Tragedy for Nothing. Until then, well, you know the drill. 
leave a review if you can. But more importantly, thanks again for listening. To all the new listeners, welcome. To those who've returned, can't say thanks enough. And more important than any of that, keep safe and stay well.